Welcome back to the ITK podcast. I'm UK and let's get right into the show. Brigadier Muritala Mohammed was not even in the country at the time of the coup that overthrew Yakubu Gowon. He was in London when it all happened as he had been informed of the timing of the coup beforehand and closely monitored the activities of the coup plotters from his safe house in London. He took refuge to avoid any double crossings or attempts on his life by retaliating Gowon loyalists. His plane was the only plane allowed to land in Nigeria the night after the coup had taken place. It was as he landed and assumed his new role as Nigerian head of state that Muritala etched his name into Nigerian folklore. A 37-year-old no-nonsense leader, Brigadier Muritala Mohammed came into power with a different style of governing that was the polar opposite to that of his predecessor, General Yakubu Gowon. While Gowon was conciliatory, diplomatic and cautious, Muritala was brisk, volatile and displayed decisiveness with major issues that bordered on impulsive. Gone was the methodical pace of Gowon's administration and in was Muritala's system that was decisions with immediate effect. In his book titled The Trouble with Nigeria, Chinu Achebe tells the story of how on the first morning of Muritala's regime, the notoriously tardy Lagos employees managed to find a way to get to work on time, beating the stifling traffic and transport problems, which always formed part of their standard excuse for being late to work. This depicted the reception of the new regime and how people were willing to sit up and take responsibility for their actions and do the right thing. Whether it be due to fear or respect or love or reverence, you could definitely observe with Muritala's regime there was going to be a difference. As soon as Muritala took full control as the head of state, all of the 12 military governors that served under Gowon were immediately retired. Muritala also ordered a probe into their conduct in office and 10 of the 12 were found to have illegally enriched themselves while in office. Muritala said they had in doing so betrayed the trust and confidence put in them by the nation and betrayed the ethics of their profession. He proceeded to converting their retirement to dismissal immediately. Apart from the Commissioner of Finance, Shehu Shagari, and the Commissioner for Mines and Power, Ali Mongono, all of Gowon's civil ministers were also found guilty of corrupt enrichment and were stripped of illegally obtained assets. New military governors and members of the Supreme Military Council were appointed. Notable appointees included Brigadier Olushego Obasanjo as Chief of Staff, Supreme Headquarters, Brigadier Theophilus Danjuma as Chief of Army Staff, Colonel Joseph Garba as Commissioner for External Affairs, Lieutenant Colonel Ibrahim Badamusi Babangida as Commander, Nigerian Army Armored Corps, Lieutenant Colonel Shehu Musayardua as Commissioner for Transport and Lieutenant Colonel Muhammadu Buhari as Governor of the Northeastern State. The mantra for military government all the way back to Major General Agui Ronsi's regime had been to be corrective regimes and Muritala's regime also followed suit. After correcting and dismantling the inner core of Gowon's regime, Muritala turned his gaze to the civil service and a massive investigation and retributive action was instituted against public sector corruption and inefficiency on a scale never seen before. This led to a wave of dismissals and retirements of over 10,000 public officials who were summarily dismissed or retired on the grounds of inefficiency, corruption, or old age. 
long-serving officials considered as quote-unquote part of the furniture were not spared. The army and police were not exempt from the saga of retirements. Over 200 army and police officers were retired or dismissed. Muritala, true to his contradictory nature, had the January 1966 coup plotters released from prison and also restored full benefits for the family of Major General Agui Ronsi, whom he conspired against in a coup just a decade earlier. The number of states in the nation increased from 12 to 19 as new states were carved out of existing ones. The Yoruba Western state was divided into Ogun, Oyo and Ondo states. The Southeastern state was split into Anambra and Imo states. Niger and Sokoto states were carved out of the Northwestern states. Benue Plateau state was split into Benue and Plateau states. The Northwestern state was split into the new states of Bauchi, Bornu and Gongola states. The Muritala regime kept being decisive in taking action considered to be crucial to the expansive growth and development of the nation and also embarked on a more assertive foreign policy, part of which included the backing of the MPLA as the legitimate government in Angola, an action which was much to the chagrin of the United States, who considered the MPLA to be a Marxist movement. Muritala sending massive financial aid to the MPLA led to tensions between the United States and Nigeria. Muritala also proceeded with another ambitious plan that involved the relocation of the country's federal capital territory away from the crowded, dirty and polluted Lagos to a more central Abuja. Although the move was lauded at the time, the construction of Abuja would eventually become a strain on the nation's finances and also a massive source of corruption. During the Civil War, the Nigerian army grew from a light colonial army of approximately 10,000 into a bloated and heavily armed force of 250,000. The army at this size was viewed as simply unnecessary in peacetime and some elements of the army were perceived as little modern armed political parties that could threaten the existence of a future civilian government. Hence, Muritala proceeded to sanction plans to demobilize the army and reintegrate some of the soldiers into the civilian population. So while he was doing great and drawing the admiration of the civilian population, Muritala's demobilization plan, although justified on economic grounds, upset some persons in his primary constituency, the army. Officers were not overjoyed at the prospect of being removed from the army and thrown into the uncertain life of the job market. This did not worry Muritala because he had shown that decisiveness made him become the darling of the Nigerian public and gave the country and its countrymen a sense of dynamic purpose and direction. While enjoying the benefits of public admiration, Muritala made the first of his two mistakes that may have cost him his life. He was the first military strongman as the two former heads of states, Gowon and Agui Ronsi, had governed by consensus, careful to seek out opposing viewpoints in an effort to not alienate any factions. Muritala moved with his guts and always acted in swift action, regardless of whoever opposed him. For several months, Muritala's government functioned with four brigadiers at its apex. Muritala himself, Ulushego Obasanjo, Theophilus Danjuma, and Ilya Bisala. However, in January 1976, Muritala's regime embarked on a bizarre promotion exercise which served no purpose other than to create tensions within the regime. Muritala promoted himself to a four-star general and his deputy, 
Olusego and Basenjo, as well as the Chief of Army Staff, Theophilus Danjima, were promoted to Lieutenant Generals. Other promotions would cause discontent and were extremely controversial within the army. Senior officers suddenly found themselves outranked by their once junior officers. Muritala, being very comfortable with his public image, was regularly seen without a motorcade or any security. He would move around the town startling people when they saw the head of state without personal security, moving around so freely. He wasn't conscious enough to observe the growing tensions within the ranks of the army owing to the actions he may have taken which they consider to be disenfranchising. On a chilly Friday morning in February 1976, Rita was along his usual route from his Ikui residence to his office. Shortly after 8am, his car slowly came to a halt due to the infamous Lagos traffic near the Federal Secretariat in Ikoi. A group of soldiers emerged from an adjacent patrol station and proceeded to start firing at his vehicle. His driver reacts instantly and tries to back out of the area, but his car is trapped in traffic. The assailants continued firing on the car, killing Moritala, his driver, and aide de camp. One of the assailants was alleged to have emptied all his magazines on the car, walked away to pick up more magazines, and emptied those into the Mercedes and its occupants. This Mercedes is still in the National Museum in Lagos with bullet holes till this day. After only six months in office, General Murital Mohammed was assassinated in yet another military coup. Lieutenant Colonel Buka Dimka, who was the head of the Army's Physical Training Corps and a key conspirator in the assassination that had just taken place, rushed up to the nearby Nigerian Broadcasting Corporation from where he made a nationwide broadcast explaining to the general populace that their beloved impulsive leader had been overthrown in a coup that saw him lose his life. Ritala's assassination wasn't the only one planned for that day. Key members of government were all targeted for assassination, several of whom would have very lucky escapes. Lieutenant General Obasanjo escaped death when the entourage of Colonel Dumuji was mistaken for his and shot up. He escaped to the home of his friend, Chief Saliu Bakari. Lieutenant General Theophilus Danjuma's heavily armed entourage made his would-be assassinators think twice about attacking him. The Dimka broadcast threw the nation into a pandemonium and the announcement by Colonel Dimka did very little to calm the sudden unrest that would sweep the nation. Meanwhile, on the other side of Lagos, at the Lagos Lawn Tennis Club, the 1976 Lagos Tennis Classic semi-final match between Arthur Ashi and Jeff Boriak was being played on an outdoor clay court in a sold-out arena. Suddenly, soldiers stormed the venue, firing shots sporadically in the air, ending the match. They then proceeded to march everyone out of the venue. This was in response to Dimka's broadcast claiming all military governors had been dismissed. There was confusion around the nation and a platoon took it upon themselves to halt all sporting events that were taking place in respect of the curfew that had been announced by Colonel Dimka. The tennis players and officials were then transported back to the Federal Palace Hotel. There's confusion in the lobby as players and officials alike are desperately trying to understand the unfolding situation while also reaching out to their consulates for help with leaving the country. It soon filters in that there has been a coup 
and the country's borders had been closed. Arthur Ashe sighs to himself. He had played a key role in bringing the WCT tour to Lagos. Playing in the motherland really appealed to him as one of the few African-American pro tennis players. Ashi is deep in thought when he notices a familiar face just down the lobby from him. Is that? No, it can't be, he mutters to himself as he moves closer to get a better look. Pele! Ashi exclaims as he spots the international Brazilian star in the lobby with his entourage. The two stars start talking as Ashi learns that Pele was in Lagos to shoot a Pepsi commercial. With the confusion as to who was in charge at this point came several gestures which, small and in isolation, still demonstrated Moritala's popularity across the country. High-ranking officers of the Nigerian army all sent messages to their divisions, proclaiming their loyalty to Moritala and disassociating themselves from the coup and the self-proclaimed leaders. Messages came pouring in from Kaduna, Kanu, Sokoto, Anambra and other states in support of Moritala and discounting the coup plotters and new leaders. These were all attempts to discount the coup's legitimacy. Colonel Ibrahim Babangida was dispatched by Lieutenant General Danjuma to dislodge Dinka from the radio station and to avoid detection, Danjuma ordered Babangida to travel on a motorcycle. Danjuma had been able to set up his headquarters at Colonel John Shagaya's office at the Bonny Camp Cantonment in Victoria Island. The coup plotters had foolishly kept the phone lines up in Lagos, which allowed Danjuma to call and rally loyal forces in Lagos for the counter-offensive. Babangida's mission to the radio station was incredibly dangerous as he had been marked for death by the plotters. It was also deeply personal for him as Dimka was a good friend and colleague. Babangida answered the call and went on his covert mission to scout and see what the plotters had been doing at the radio station. When Babangida walked into the radio station, he was stopped by Dimka's troops, but when Dimka sighted Babangida, he gave an order to let him through. Dimka had his rifle in his hand and Babangida was unarmed. Babangida was unaware of what had happened to Muritala, but he had a clue that Dimka and his forces were up to no good. First thing Babangida notices as he's brought into the radio station is how drunk the soldiers were, showing how poorly planned this coup attempt was. The famous Nigerian journalist B.C. Lawrence was at the radio station and he and some of his colleagues were locked in an office on Dimka's orders to allow Dimka and Babangida to speak privately. First thing Dimka says to Babangida when they meet is if he was there to play Chukuma Nwanwo, which was a reference to the January 1966 coup when Lieutenant Colonel Conrad Nwanwo traveled to Kaduna to convince Major Chukuma Nzogu to surrender. Babangida appeals to Dimka in Hausa to come to his senses. He plays up their friendship and even tells Dimka that he's not afraid of being killed by a friend because he knows that Dimka would take care of his wife and kids. During the interaction, Dimka brags to Babangida that he would have been dead by now if not for him. He informs him that some of Babangida's colleagues involved in the coup had personally marked him for death. This revelation really hurt Babangida and would forever change the way he viewed politics and coups. The back and forth between both officers came to an end when Dimka convinced Babangida, having realized his coup attempt lacked support from the army, to obtain a written amnesty from Danjuma for the coup plotters. Babangida relays this to Danjuma, 
who sends him back to the radio station with armed troops to flush out the rebels. On his arrival back at the station, a firefight between the rebels and loyal government troops ensued, during which rebels were either killed or apprehended. Dimka, in a bizarre state of circumstances, was able to escape from the radio station to his friend's house, where he hid, hoping to wait out the chaos he started. Meanwhile, at the Federal Palace Hotel, everyone was still shocked to see what was befalling them at the moment. The Nigerian immigration officers had collected most of the players' passports on their arrival from Barcelona and held on to them because their visas needed to be revalidated. The five American players later received phone calls from the US Embassy that evening. They were informed of everything that was happening. They had been listening in to the Nigerian Broadcasting Corporation, which had gone off around 3pm when federal government troops tried to recapture the radio station. Rumors had been circulating across the country that the US government via the Central Intelligence Agency was involved in the coup attempt and assassination of General Murital Mohammed. This was because of the well-publicized differences between the US government and Nigerian government. So, the US athletes were on high alert, remaining in the hotel to avoid capture and mislabeling as CIA operatives. The tennis match scheduled for the coming Saturday was also cancelled because of the National Morning Day declared for the fallen general. John McDonald, the head of the WCT, pushed for the players to continue with the tournament, which was met with mixed feelings, but he explained to the players that if they didn't play, they wouldn't be let out of the country. This was because their passports were still with the Nigerian customs officials. The semi-final matches resumed at 11am on Sunday, February 15th, and all formalities went smoothly without any incidents. All the players were relieved to hear that the government had promised to provide a plane to fly them out of the country at the end of the tournament, despite the closure of the national borders and airports. The American tennis players stuck in the country found a way to pass time. They decided to go to the Brazilian ambassador's residence to have lunch with Pele. Pele hadn't heard anything concerning his departure plans yet, and the athletes could see his worried expressions as they proceeded with their game. It was a game of gin rummy which Arthur Ashi was all too familiar with. The athletes all decided to spice things up by making monetary bets. Pele, being a proper sportsman, couldn't back out of the challenge. He ended up losing a pretty penny as he was no match for the skills of the other athletes at the challenge. Pele had forgotten his predicament for a while until his visitors took their leave. Then reality set in. It wasn't until a few days later that he got a call from the Pepsi management team informing him of good news. To the relief of Pele and his team of ad promoters and marketers, the government had decided to open up the Nigerian borders again, which meant Pele could finally make his way out of the country. The Brazilian ambassador asserted that he disguised himself as a pilot for safety reasons. As the plane took off, Pele said a prayer and breathed a huge sigh of relief. Tensions were high as the death of Murital Mohammed left a vacuum at the position of head of state. The leading candidates to fill this vacuum were the Chief of Staff Supreme Headquarters, Lieutenant General Olusegun Obasanjo, and the Chief of Army Staff, Lieutenant General Theophilus Danjuma. Obasanjo was the most senior and experienced of the two, but a sizable faction of the Supreme Military Council and senior officers wanted the role for Danjuma. They argued that having put down the coup, Danjuma enjoyed the loyalty and confidence of the army. They considered Obasanjo an outsider that will not command the same level of loyalty as Danjuma. Obasanjo himself even endorsed Danjuma's candidacy. However, Danjuma refused the role. 
Reason for this was as a Christian from the Middle Belt, he was well aware of the implications that would come from him taking over as leader of the country after a failed coup led by Middle Belt officers. Major General Agui Ironsi took over Nigeria after the January 1966 coup led primarily by Igbo officers. This led to a revenge coup by Hausa Fulani officers a few months later in July. Danjuma, being the politically savvy officer he was, refused to repeat the same mistake made by Ironsi and instead offered the role of President Obasanjo. A Yoruba man at the top would help ease tensions with the Hausa Fulani soldiers while at the same time taking any potential targets off his back. A very emotional Obasanjo refused the role. Having survived three coups in the last 10 years, his faith in the military was completely lost. He declares he would only take the role if Danjima stays as his second in command as he had the support of the army. Danjima very quickly agrees to this compromise. Now that Obasanjo was head of state, the post of chief of staff for Supreme Headquarters was vacant. Obasanjo knew that even though he wasn't by merit, the role had to go to a Hausa Fulani officer, specifically a Muritala loyalist, in order to ease tensions. The two candidates were Lieutenant Colonels Muhammadu Buhari and Shehu Musa Yaradwa. Both Buhari and Yaradwa were Fulani officers from the same geographic region in northwestern Nigeria and were prime candidates to fill the role formerly held by Obasanjo. They were the most logical options. Buhari was from Daura and was the military governor of Bornu State, and Yaradwa was the federal commissioner for transport and was from an aristocratic Fulani family. Buhari was edged out by Yaradwa for a number of reasons, including that Buhari was seen as being too inflexible for the post, and Yaradwa's name was more recognizable among the Hausa Fulani ruling circles. That's it for this week's episode. Special thanks to Dose Cake for writing this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcast fix. Follow the podcast so you can get your weekly updates. If you have any topics, events, or people you would like to see covered, hit me up on Twitter at ITK underscore podcast or on Instagram at ITK underscore podcast. I'm UK and this has been the ITK podcast. <laughs>